The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Switch to Aussie-owned Red Energy today, Prince Wine Store, bringing Melburnians the greatest wine in the world, and Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil, grown, harvested and first cold-pressed in northern Victoria. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. And welcome everybody to episode 279 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm here with Corrie Perkin, uh, Cobram Olive Oil, Miss Jane's Beautiful Camellias. And Corrie, there's a lot to talk about, as ever. As ever, Caro, hello everybody. Uh, we were going to talk about spring today. I'm glad we postponed that to next week, Caro, because although it was <laughs> lovely weather spring. over the weekend, it's yeah, postponed it's really cold today here in Melbourne, but that's okay because spring is in the air. We'll have a big spring special next week, but lots to talk about, including some very, very interesting sporting moments over the weekend, this past weekend. Yes, and some unbelievable scenes on the MCG that didn't have anything to do with sport. Corrie, we need to just do a couple of things before we start, and one of them is to thank our sponsor, Red Energy. We've got a big event coming up with Red Energy in November. Before I tell you about that, I want to thank all our lovely podcast friends who came to the Miracle Club at the Brighton Bay last Tuesday night. It was a lovely night. It was. I love the gang that come to our movie nights. And in fact, we're going to do them each year, maybe even two a year. I don't know. But it was just so lovely to have a glass of wine beforehand. And we all went in and watched the movie. Which we'll talk about in BSF. Which we will. And um, so we... So we, thanks for coming, everybody. Yeah. Look, it was it was a small but very, very warm and fuzzy turnout. And um, some great friends. I met... I can't believe I'm still meeting friends of the podcast who I've never met before. But it's like they say they feel like they know me and I feel like I know them, Corrie. Um, Thursday, November 16, put this in your diary, Thursday, November 16. It's our next live event. It will be very different to the last one. It's in Richmond and it is at a very smart room, the offices of Red Energy. And we'll tell you more about that very, very soon. We're going to have some great guests as well. Um, Gab from Gab has been in touch. Corrie, should we do a bit of correspondence? We have. I have a little bit as well, but you kick us off. She loved the pod last week. The FIFA World Women's World Cup 2023 has brought a fresh right wave of excitement to the sports scene in Australia. It will be great to see a calendar of Matilda's games for the next few years shared with the AFL. Perhaps a good leaving gift for Gil to include in Andrew Dillon's handover. Don't think we're going to see that, Gab. I wonder how many people are going to call their girls Matilda in the next few years, Corrie. Kylie Narrick, girls, I second at Jane Neal's recommendation of at Good, Goodman Wines. Beautiful rosé she made for Breast Cancer Charity. We had Kate at Women of the MCC, Women in Wine, and it's a top drop, pale enough for me. Kate actually um, met, Jane actually met Kate Goodman at the Pink Lady event at the MCG, which um, we both attended and didn't see each other, which is not surprising, Miss Jane, given that there were 10,000 people. Um, great woman in wine. Apparently she's raised tens of thousands of dollars 
for BCNA with the wine. Is this correct, Jane? Yeah, she was amazing. I actually spoke to her mum and she goes, oh, you know that my daughter won, um, you know, winemaker of the year. And I'm like, oh my God, we talked about her on the <laughs> podcast. Um, so just a shout out to Kate, who is, you know, in recovery and a survivor of breast cancer, but did such an amazing job with this particular wine, uh, which we'll pop the link in the show notes. It's almost sold out, but just a way to use your craft and your passion and what, you know, she does as a winemaker to actually raise really much needed funds for breast cancer. Network Yay. Australia. Um, we should follow. We should actually get her in at some stage for the cocktail cabinet. Uh, Caro, I have a message here from Nick from Richmond. He said, hi, Caro and Corey. I was just listening to your show and heard you talking about Woman in Five Acts. That was the Daniela Crean book, one yes. of the ones I referred to last week. Which sounded brilliant, I must you, say. You, Corey, are the first person I know who has read this book, which I thought was fantastic and gave a great picture of the complexities of life for women in juggling different roles, and your comments were perceptive. I encourage other listeners, both men and women, to read the book, and I look forward to reading The Fire, which you revu- reviewed and which I haven't heard of. Nick from Richmond. Thanks very much for that. And we also have... a. Um, a lovely note that came in this morning via both our texts, I think, from Lynn Swinburne, as we said, founder and former CEO of Breast Cancer Network Australia and the woman who really envisaged 25 years ago the field of women and the big pink lady. Lynn says, girls, thank you for promoting our event. It was pretty bloody special. Don't you agree, Caro? Caro, because I wasn't there. You were. A beautiful sense of connectedness and love, says Lynn. One bloke proposed to his girlfriend who'd been diagnosed a year earlier and then he gave her the ring on the field. They were excitedly, very excitedly sharing the good news with me. Bless. And Linny adds, off on Monday to have my knee replacement so I'll be lying low for a while. We wish you all the best with your new knee, Lynn, and I hope it helps the golf game. Not that you need help because you're way better than I. So Corrie, we'll come to the field of women, of which you and I did the first one 18 years ago, an extraordinary event at the MCG. But there was a lot going on at the MCG over the weekend and a lot going on in the AFL over the weekend and a lot going on in international football over the weekend. So I'm not going to spend too long on the farewell to Trent Conchin and Jack Revolt, but there were tears at the MCG for me two days in a row. It was just such an extraordinary day for the Richmond Footy Club. Of course, Jack Siebel, the North Melbourne captain, was also farewelled, and his farewell ended in ugly controversy when he was king hit outside of South Yarra uh, pub, the Osborne late, late, late on Saturday night. And I think he's still got to have facial reconstructive surgery as a result of that incident. But um, getting back to the happy event, I mean, lots of children, they played the song When We Were Kings and showed highlights of Jack and Trent's career after the game. Trent Cotchin unashamedly crying. These two great champions who played such a pivotal role in Richmond's journey from basket case to three-time premiership club. And who was the more important player in your view? Look, in equal terms, both of them. Jack um, was a champion full forward who won, you know, more than won several Coleman medals, um, topped the goal kicking year after year, came over from Tasmania, became, was outside the leadership group and seen as a bit of a selfish, difficult player, even when he was great, brought into the leadership group famously in 2017. Trent Cochin won a Brownlow off the back of Joe Watson losing his Brownlow and changed his game at the start at the end of 2016 to become an in and under player who didn't gather that many possessions but became one of the great captains despite some fairly negative publicity at times from the AFL who 
can't see the wood for the trees, in my view, or some of their leadership. He was absolutely brilliant. But what w- Richmond did, they have they had the women of Richmond to um, a bit of a lunch, and Brendan and Jane Gale organised this. And Mum went because you know she's dad was president for twelve years, and Mum played a big role there at the time. Jan Richmond, Denise Bartlett, who's very very ill, and that was um, it was sad to see Denise and poor Kevin Bartlett, who. Um, has been a wonderful carer, but it's been really tough. Daniel Hardwick and her children turned up for a while in the function. I think Richmond have given the former Mrs Hardwick passes to the footy, you know, almost in perpetuity in that Olympic stand. Mentioned on that famous grand in that famous grand final speech by yes. her former husband. Damien Hardwick obviously was there as well with his new partner. But, I mean, I thought that was a really nice touch, having Daniel Hardwick there. And it was just an extraordinary day. And then the next day, and... Oh, Miss Jane, didn't the weather smile upon the BCNA? I mean, it was a beautiful day. It was so hot under our pink ponchos, Corrie. You would have died. I mean, I had this jack- this pink jacket I bought into the studio today. I had to take that off. I just had a short sleeve sort of top underneath. And we were all sweltering. It was oh, so could beautiful. Been, could have been an en masse nude event. <laughs> Hosted by, um, well, John Deeks was there. Um, Bev O'Connor was the MC on the ground. Lynn Swinburne spoke. Kirsten Pilates spoke beautifully. Oh, and she got, had me in tears. Oh. She got so emotional. I mean, I have lost no one super, super, super close to me from breast cancer, but I've had some dear friends who's, yes, that's right, Corrie, touch wood. I've had some dear friends who are breast cancer recoverers. And when they said, everybody on the ground, put up your hands if you've been diagnosed in the past with breast or cancer. Or a and, survivor. Yeah. Or a survivor. I mean, Corrie, the hands that went up. Oh. And then they um, did a big screen tribute to people who've died in the last year from breast cancer, playing Olivia Newton-John. I honestly love you. I don't know about you, Jane, but that was... And then the Australian Girls Choir, all in pink ponchos. Singing, you're the voice. You're the voice. Oh. And then this is me. I mean, it sounds... Cor- it wasn't... It was no, so it doesn't moving. sound corny. I have tears. Yeah. Especially and- with the Australian Girls Choir. They're fab. I said name drop, name drop, but there were lots of, you know, the, Sally Cap was there, Linda Desso was there, you know, the former um, Governor of Victoria, the current Lord Mayor of Victoria, Gary Pert from um, CEO of Melbourne. I said to all of them, if they can't get Robbie Williams again, honestly, get the Australian Girls Choir yeah. on grand final day. Now I the agree. crowded house have pulled out. Anyway, it was, and you were missed, Corrie. We'll do the next one together. Look forward to that. And can I just, look, give a plug. So I did produce two seasons of a podcast um, with the Breast Cancer Network Australia. Dr. Charlotte Totman is a clinical psychologist. She came over with uh, family from from Adelaide and Kelly Curtin, who hosted this series. So many people walking up and saying, I listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger, but also people who have listened to this podcast series, which is called Upfront About Breast Cancer, What You Don't Know Until You Do. You must listen to it, even if you have no experience or anyone in your life who's had or diagnosed with breast cancer or any disease, because the insight that Dr. Charlotte Totman gives us into not only her diagnosis and how she lost the plot after being diagnosed and then the road to recovery, but just in general, like, you know, she actually spoke just before the event saying, reach out to someone in your life. Mm. This is going to be really, really emotional. Reach out and... So much great info in that podcast. That well, and so, and so, also, so many women like myself have had a lumpectomy. So, uh, what happens there is um, the doctor says you can feel a lump or you have a mammogram and there's a lump. So, you go off to a breast um, surgeon and they put a treatment in place for you. So, you have to have a biopsy first of all. And then 
depending how the biopsy goes, in my case, it was benign, but it had to be removed because mm. there were cells that they were not sure about. At that point, when they say you have a lump and we have to send you off for a biopsy, you really do start to move into unknown territory, unless, yeah. of course, you've been through breast cancer before with, you know, family or good friends. So when I arrived at the clinic to have the biopsy, the BCNA presence in that public ward of the St. Vincent's Hospital was so extraordinary, Caro and Jane. They're just, there's, they're, first of all, the people, the, the women, mostly women who are working there are all wonderful, but also the paraphernalia, the, the marketing tools, the brochures you can pick up, the website's fantastic, everything you need to know for that journey. And, you know, mine was a happy outcome, but you are nervous for a couple of weeks. You mm. are really concerned mm. because you don't know anything about it. Well, so the yep. podcast that you produced and the BCNA, um, what they have done to demystify this terrible disease, this terrible illness is really extraordinary. Hats off to everybody. And if you are ever in the same position as me, just jump on to bcna.org.au. And advocating um, for the drugs that need to be taken off, yes, which which um, Kirsten spoke about incredibly well on the MCG. And and also, look, um, you've got to also mention Baker's Delight, Suzanne, Red Energy, our own Red Energy, yeah. who have sponsored the event absolutely brilliantly. They raised over a million dollars after all costs, and it, it is a very, very big thing to put on. So let's hope the AFL really get behind it next time as well as the Melbourne Football Club. Last time, it, in the past, it has been held at night and it does look beautiful when it's held at night. Are you suggesting the AFL didn't do as much as they could have? No, look, they made it clear that they just, this was a Melbourne Football Club um, event this year. It wasn't that they didn't help. And um, Brian Walsh, who's an executive of the AFL, he was there um, with his partner, Janelle, and it was great that they were there. But, I mean, they, you know, they do a lot for a lot of different charities and this just wasn't something they really super, super, super got behind this time. I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not criticising them, but it would be great if they got more behind it mm. next time. I mean, there are so mm. many events, you know, obviously MND and the King's Birthday and what they do with the Neil Danaher, um, you know, big freeze is brilliant, but be great to see more support for BCNA. Oh, there you go, women's health again. Now, Carol, it was a weekend of lots of emotion and controversy on the field, and I want to ask you about the Ben Keys goal. Yeah, what was, was that umpire thinking, and why did he not call for a review? It's funny, the poor guy. He's an Adelaide Crows um, absolute nutter too. He's a real Adelaide Crows fan. He um, has been involved in a goal controversy before involving Josh Jenkins, I think five or six years ago. And I don't mean to point the finger either because I think under pressure all of us can make decisions that we well, later regret. Well, the AFL regret. has. The no, AFL has. I know, they've but I think, I do think they've, they've yeah. squarely pointed well, the finger Well, then I know, but there needs to be a bit of uh, support from the community, kind of a wider understanding about this too before we crucify. But I just don't understand why they didn't call, he did not call for a, an electronic review. What, what happened? So it was um, Saturday night at the Adelaide Oval. Sydney had been thrashing Adelaide. This is a game that had major ramifications for the top eight and for Sydney and for Adelaide and for St Kilda, who was playing that night, and for GWS, who was playing that afternoon. I mean, it was who absolutely thrashed Essendon, but are not assured of a spot in the finals, largely because of this result. Anyway, um, Ben Keyes had... Adelaide staged a magnificent comeback. Ben Keyes 
had a shot for goal to win the game in the last minute of the game. He celebrated as soon as he watched the ball go through. It was quite close to the, um, well, as you're staring at the goal, the left-hand post, but it clearly went through on all different reviews. Um, the goal umpire was so unequivocal that it had touched the um, po- the goal post that um, nobody, none of the other, this is the excuse anyway, that none of the other umpires who were in the vicinity and didn't have as good a view thought to review it. Um, the men in the arc or women in the arc, this AFL structure that has been built to review such things, um, I think by the time they realised what had happened, the ball had been kicked out. Mm. Adelaide had celebrated, so they hadn't set up properly for the kick out. Sydney had the ball back in their forward so line. So there was a total assumption that it were, from the players that it was a goal. Yes. and Can, even, I, can I just ask something except, at this point, Except Cara? some of the Adelaide players who were adamant it wasn't, but it was too late because had the ARC people then called for a review, the ball would have had to have been brought back. It would have been... Yes. But that's what... There should be a mechanism... That speeds it up. And Can you know, I just ask a question? If a player on either side is absolutely firmly convinced on what the truth is and it's contrary to what the umpire has called, does that player have an opportunity to talk to the umpire or indeed the other players, uh, other umpires, and not in a um, no. know, typical kind of trying no. to get the goal when they did but, no. but if they genuinely believe? Well, players do that, but it's, it's up to um, another umpire or the goal umpire himself to call for a review. Of course players do that. And afterwards, you could see Ben Keyes with his coach, Matthew Nix, going, oh, you know, you could, yeah. he was saying it was a goal. And Matthew Nix didn't know. And even some of the Crows, you know, the Crows hierarchy had thought, well, everybody thought it was so unequivocal. So the other thing that, you know, this is just a little media gripe of mine. The other thing that's irritating is um, Fox Footy don't cover um, games outside Victoria anymore. Like they call them, but they don't go and cover them. So they didn't have anyone there except for, I think I think it was Mark Rusciuto on the boundary. I'm not sure who they have, or a couple of people on the boundary. But their callers aren't there. So things that happen in the game are just missed. And that's something I think the AFL should stand up to, and we should have actual callers at the game. Would they? Would it have made a difference? Probably not. But, you know, a Swans player was subbed off during the game and no one mentioned it for 10 minutes. Um, one of um, Tom Papley was sitting on the bench with his... Um, leg in ice, covered in ice. Nobody mentioned it for about 10 minutes. Anyway, um, that's really interesting. That night, that night um, Gillan McLaughlin, who was at the St Kilda game in Melbourne, he was on the phone to the Adelaide people. By dawn the next day, Gillan McLaughlin called John Olson, the pr- president of the club, Tim Silvers, the CEO of the club, and Matthew Nixon apologised to all of them and said it was a goal. What was, a, what was disappointing for me is that... Um, in the press conference Gillen subsequently held on Sunday morning, there was no talk of how we're going to fix this in the future. But he now, can't because he's the outgoing. I mean, it would be difficult for him as the outgoing CEO to pontificate on what should yes, be happening. Yes, he could. He, I mean, of course, he's a CEO. You're the CEO until you're not the CEO. And, and you know, the excuse of the AFL is that, well, not, better technology wouldn't have fixed that. But I say there should be a mechanism whereby the guys in the ARC and the girls in the ARC can actually call this and and insist on a review sooner. A few weeks ago, Aaliyah Aaliyah, a Port Adelaide player, was, you know, should have been sent down for a, um, a scan for concussion, but he wasn't. Adelaide has received a massive fine for this and was severely punished. 
but and the doctor stuffed up. So again, it was human error. So why isn't there a mechanism to overrule someone to to take away at least some of the room for human error? And you know, we've just had a World Cup um, series here in Australia, Women's World Cup, and we've seen with more money what you can do with goal line technology. And ours is not, and that isn't for this one because. It probably should have been um, the goal umpire shouldn't have made the mistake. But last week, when Christian Petraco allegedly kicked a goal, the Carlton player Caleb Marchbank said he touched it. Not really mm. sure whether that actually happened. And um, again, that was a mistake by the the goal line technology because it just didn't have the it wasn't equ- no, well equipped enough. It didn't to, have all angles covered. Yeah. So it, it, it's, you know, yet again, it just shows that Gillen has stayed too long. While he's here, there's no real head of football because the head of football is Andrew Dillon. He's trying to restructure the AFL, but he can't do anything till Gillen goes. And when these things happen, to me, it just absolutely pinpoints the leadership vacuum in a sense at the AFL because things aren't happening quickly enough. If the Crows had made the eight as a result of that goal... How far do you think realistically they would have gone in the final series? Well, they wouldn't have. They, they still would have been a chance for the eight. Oh, okay, because yeah. there was another. There was more. Yeah, they they still would have been. Yeah, it would have kept them an outside chance yeah. for the eight. So what's happened now is Adelaide has gone nuts. Not the club, but the the city and even the wider state. Um, the majority of football fans in that state are Crows supporters. They are raging, raging. Stephen Rowe, who I do a spot with on Five AA every Thursday night said in the commentary, cheated and robbed, which some people say there should oh, be, gosh. there should be, I mean, they are furious. So John Olson, the former Premier, now um, chairman of the club, has come out and said they want favours in other areas because it's oh. going to cost them financially. Yes, like, we'll give us a draft pick or something or two. Well, a, a better fixture <laughs> or less travel. I mean, that isn't going to happen officially, but yeah, might happen unofficially. Oh, now, go. I want to ask you about the other code and the kiss. Well, I don't know whether you saw this, Caro. I didn't because I had gone to bed. But when the Spanish women's football team, soccer team, <laughs> was on the podium and receiving all their accolades, the Spanish football president, I'll get the title right, the Royal Spanish Football Federation president, Louis Rebelay, kissed full on, took Jennifer Halmosa's face in both hands and gave her a kiss on the lips, a significant kiss on the lips, After and then a pat on the back. All, he'd kissed all the other players on the cheek. Correct. That in itself was like, what? That was a big moment of what for a lot of women on this planet who saw that. How did she react in your view? She reacted. She was a bit, well, she was elated, and she wasn't struck by the kiss at that point. She was probably still trying to... Um, workshop it in her head, what had actually happened. But later she said that she did not appreciate it and that it made her feel awkward in a Twitter comment and to some journalists. She later rolled that back and said, oh, it's just the way we are here in Spain. We're so excited. He was over exuberant. We're great friends. Everything's fine here. But that was after um, her boss, as it were, Rabbi, I can't pronounce it. I'm sorry, I have a terrible Spanish accent. I don't know how to speak it, but it's Rabaye, I think is how you pronounce it. Rabaye came out immediately, apologised, said his behaviour was unacceptable and that um, that he regretted it. The thing that really stuck in my craw, Carol, was his comment when he said, uh, I surely I made a mistake 
we have a great magnificent relationship between the two of us, the same as with all the other girls. I made a mistake. I have to recognise that in a moment of elation without any intention of bad faith, it just happened, I think, in a very spontaneous way. Um, I didn't understand um, that I, what I was doing, but outside of the bubble, it looks like I, what I've done has turned into a storm. And so if there are people who have felt offended, I have to say I'm sorry. So when people say... Um, the it, Wayne Carey apology, yeah. if I offended anyone when he grabbed the woman's breast in the city. What is that form of apology called? We must come up with a name. It's called the it. Wayne Carey apology. <laughs> well, I don't think Rabbi is going to know who Wayne Carey is if we accuse him of that. But it's the person who says, I'm not racist, but, or it's the person who says, um, oh, look, I am sorry that you feel I upset you. If you feel affronted, I apologise. Yeah, apologies need to be unequivocal. It needs to be, I am gutted, I am sorry, I take full responsibility. It's all about like me apologising to you. It's not how you've perceived it, uh, world audiences out there. So I, I think it's a really interesting moment. The, the, of course, the social media has gone, um, gone pretty, pretty crazy on this topic. A, a lot of people see this as a defining moment when we've had such a successful international um, sporting event that's kicked so many goals, pardon the pun, and all of a sudden we have this moment where a woman is being kissed on the lips and she hasn't asked for it and it's not appropriate. It is not appropriate. Yeah, I look, you know, I'm I'm trying to be I, I'm not yeah, as outraged. But God, no, be as, be the devil's advocate here. Look, I, clearly it was he shouldn't have done it. And clearly when he did do it, he should have apologized better. But I can sort of understand how it to happened. To me, Caro, sorry to interrupt your thought there, but I just wanted to fi finish with this one. To me, for me, and I know it's an individual thing, but kissing somebody full on the lips when they haven't asked it is like brushing your a man, brushing his arm or actually touching your breast. Oh, no, I don't think so. I do. Yep. No, no, fair enough. And I think you've got to take it in the context of the moment. I think he was completely overexcited. He overreacted. He shouldn't have done it. But I can under, I can see a man doing it to a man. I can see a woman doing it to a man. I can see a Well, we did see a man do it to a woman. A and, woman would not do that to a woman? Oh, yes, she would. No. If that president was a female... I bet you a hundred pesos. Some women might, but you know, might get overexcited and do it. No, nah. and all, and all, Jane, what, would you? What made it better Jane, for you me? Jane, if you were the president of the soccer federation as oh, a female, would you have? Absolutely not. And I would actually find that way more intimate than being touched on the bum or accidentally grabbed on the boob. To be honest, that's horrific. Yeah, no, I, I disagree oh. with that. And I, do you know what? Do you know why I disagree? If the hands hadn't been involved, but there was something about the grabbing, grabbing. of the cheeks. No, that made it. What sort you of, think it's like? That's childlike. That's like a childlike yeah, thing. More, that also is slightly unacceptable. I, I, I don't too. think. Oh, you sweet little girl! Yeah. Well done, kicking Look, that goal. I didn't. I, I please. I can quite. I, I quite agree. It was inappropriate, and I didn't like it, and it looked weird. But I don't think in any way that this, for me, has diminished what happened. In oh, Australia, I'm, well, I'm not saying that. The World I, no, Cup no, no, no. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying no, it's you diminished. Said, you said there I, was I this said, great, I said great there's moment. been an there's there's it was an it's been an outcry. There's been an outcry, and it, isn't it an interesting juxtaposition where we have this thing now that we're saying women's sport is equal? 
women's football is equal. We have proven it with ratings, with sponsorship, with crowds turning up, you know, tick all the boxes. This has been a very successful uh, event based around a woman's sport. And then we have at the very end of it, this kind of moment Yes. Which relates to and he the should have apologised. Soccer, the soccer he player being treated like a girl. He should have unequivocally apologised. But I personally think this was an elated president kissing an elated athlete, and I'm I would like to think that the sex didn't actually come into it. I mean, I'm trying to think. So when Melbourne won the flag a few years ago in 2021, and Kate Rothy, the president, and Simon Goodwin, the coach. Kate went and gave Simon, well, they gave each other a bear hug and there was a big embrace. There was absolutely nothing inappropriate I about I, that. I, you know me, I'm a very touchy-feely person. I think I think hugging and touching, you know, like all for it, a kiss on the lips when a woman doesn't expect it and probably doesn't want it. Oh, yes, it. and we all know blokes who've come for the... Come in for the lips. So we don't all we, know and that. We, we, and, don't, and, we don't like it. And no. I have a serial offender in my life who will who doesn't listen to this podcast, so that's all right. Um, <laughs> but but who who will I make have a one, point? I have a couple too. And who makes a point of touching so lately, touching women's breasts with his chest when he gives you a hug or arms? You know, had enough of that too. Just quietly. I'm 60 now, and I can say, you know, hands off. <sighs> Gosh, I mean, I'm 60. There's the, I, think the line I think you're actually a bit over 60, if you don't mind me saying. Can I give you girls some homework for next week? Because this whole Spanish um, soccer thing is not over yet. There's no. players who have written formal letters and several who did not play in this competition because of issues behind the scenes with the coach. Very little coverage of that in the last. You know, I've heard a bit. But this was not this. This was not the Spanish coach. Coach, I hasten to add. Oh, the 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 coach has had a lot of issues with his. There's a lot of issues. A lot of them are not talking. The fact that they won is just credit to the women. Can I just also say that we're about to launch into AFL. The scenes around the coach. After the win, oh, and I, yeah. I was really honing in no, on that as well. I so I didn't see El Presidente coming because I was more interested in the coach. <laughs> well, isn't it interesting how, I mean, it just it hats off to the Spanish players because they put all of that baggage behind them and all of that drama and controversy about the fact that so many of them weren't talking to their coach. And the, coach the coach too must have I, done it. I just want to say while we're job. on a high about women's sport and we're coming into AFLW season, post-Matildas, women athletes, Men of the AFL, the key word here is athlete, okay? Athlete. Not women, not girl, not sex kitten, none of that. Athlete. Women athletes. Or footballers. Yeah, or footballers. Exactly. But they're, they're women. They're, they're fo- the key word is footballer. The key word is athlete. That's it. Just going to leave it there. Yeah, well, no, you, you can't leave it Watch there. this I mean, space. Watch this space. As a journalist, when I'm writing about AFLW, if I have to differ, and at the moment there's a pay dispute going on. I'm not saying you drop the women's word. I'm saying to the men, don't treat the women as women. Treat them as athletes, professional athletes. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, well, do is, for men, do for women what you do for men. Yes. Don't patronise, don't condescend. Don't stick them in a box with the girls over here. But viva la difference. And the the AFLW is very much trying to celebrate that this year and actually celebrate the differences in the competition, the differences between the sexes, the differences between the athletes. I That's mean, our choices, though. The women can make those choices and make those calls and make those rules. But it's when the blokes come over the top 
Yes, but I think we know that we are different and we do treat different people differently. I mean, We don't kiss each other on the lips if no. we don't know each other very well. No. Well, well, he says he did know her very well. <laughs> that was a difference. Although Even she, so. Well, she said it made her uncomfortable. So, you know. There, there, that's the bottom line of the whole story. She felt uncomfortable, but interesting that she then wheeled that back and I'd love to know the pressure put on her. I think we need a drink. A Spanish drink. And thanks to Prince Wine Store, it's time for the cocktail cabinet. Just remember, you head to Prince Wine Store via their website, princewinestore.com.au, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. And miles today, you can also go to their beautiful outlet in South Melbourne, mm. which is absolutely fabulous. The flagship store. I was store. there last week. Yes. Guess who, guess who looked after me in his little checkout miles. Chap outfit? Checkout chap. Miles I did. did. Oh, came out of the taste. Came out of the tasting room. I was room. there last week too. I didn't see you show oh, your face. You? Yeah, no, I You just got to let them know that because I'm demanded. upstairs. So I demanded. I'll come down. I said I'm not buying I come down one for... bottle of wine until Miles is here. I've had a few potties come in, and I always come down. Effie's very good. He's the store manager there. She always calls calls me upstairs and goes, "There's potties here. You have to come down." I told them you're here, so you can't say no. And I'm like, oh, "Okay." Now, Miles, we'll be... <laughs> you've become a celeb. So, Miles, it's Spain funny. won anyway, the World Cup, good. and we made a yes. deal that whoever won the World Cup, sadly, yes. sadly, we're not going back to any wonderful wine area of Australia, not, including no. the wonderful McLaren Vale do you or remember, the Barossa. Yes. Do you remember though this time last week when we wasn't we weren't sure of the result? We were thinking, "God, if England win." Mm, English wines. Yeah. <laughs> no, we were going Some to be good doing sparkling, gin. But we were going to do gin. Yeah, gin. That's, that's right. right. But we're not. We're going to talk. We've got Spain. Spain. So what can you tell us? Well, I've got t I've got two wines. They're from the same producer, Casa Rojo. It's actually a producer we just started importing ourselves. They're really, really good. Um, so we're really, really sort of stoked to have them on board. So I have the first one's actually called um, uh, the it's a Casa Rojo and it's the La Gabacha, La which, Gabacha. which I think is lobster. Anyway, it's got a picture oh. of a lobster on the label. Oh, beautiful. Um, Could our Spanish-speaking yeah. audience members please fill exactly. us in on what is the Spanish word for lobster? I'm making big assumptions here. Uh, it is from Rueda, which is which is sort of, I guess, northwest kind of inland. And it's actually 100% Sauvignon Blanc. Now, I'm not really a Sauvignon Blanc fan, but this is very good. Quite sort of mineral and textured. Comes off quite old sort of 20, 30-year-old vines there. Has that lovely sort of tropical sort of mango hit, but it's got this lovely sort of it's kind of spiked with this really lovely minerality, which kind of keeps it really sort of fresh and zingy. So it's not your sort of NZ Marlborough Sav Blanc. It, if you like those sort of Adelaide Hill styles, a bit more sort of lean and a little bit more sort of zippy, this is where you're heading with that. It's a really good one. We were really surprised because we're all like, I don't want to say we're Sav Blanc haters, but it's not our favorite grapes. And so when we it sort went of, sort from of being like, the drink of the nineties, really did New Zealand did an amazing Remember Scott, job. Um, not, not what was the one we all used to drink from South Australia? Um, oh. Not Scott Stonely. Sean Smith. Sean oh. Smith. That is still. I mean, Sean Smith in general are fantastic. That was Those wines the are, creme de la creme, and it, it still really is was. very good. But the Stonely the from New Zealand, we used to. Then it got a bit yeah. metallic. Babbage and, and yeah, Babbage was another one. Yeah, it's a popular one. Um, still, still popular. Calatonia. Um, Cal At one stage we Caledonia, were calling yeah. Sav Blanc the Brighton Soother. <laughs> yeah. you I won't tell you some of the names I know for Sav Blanc. What is it? Not Calatonia sound. Cala <laughs> anyway, I'll come back to In you. In Cloudy Bay. Yep, every, everyone. 
beautiful. Obsessed with Claudia, which is a great wine too. It's one of those. But anyway, things. we're talking about anyway, Lagabacha. We're talking about Spanish. Yep. Spanish wine. So Lagabacha, Rueda. Yep. So Rueda is the, 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 the area, of course, how they do it there. Um, I think Catalina, the, Catalina sound. Sorry. Catalina sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that too. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go on. Uh, yeah, just like really fantastic. If you like all that kind of fruit forward, like thing that you get with Sauvignon Blanc, but with a little more sort of zip and zing, this is uh, the way to go. How much? $30. Not bad. Uh, really well priced. That's pretty good. Yeah. Great wine. And remember, put in the promo code MEWS for your 10% listener discount. And they deliver, Corrie, Australia-wide. And if you go to Prince Wine Store in South Melbourne, just ask for miles. The potties are here. And, and, and I'll come down and... Have a chit-chat with you. Mm, can't say I, that happened to me last week, but anyway. Yeah, that's what I said. You just I obviously a... don't know who you are. No, no, we were you've, chatting. You've got with, to come no, up. no, we had a long chat about the footy and um, gorgeous girls. Were you there me. at Bellotto? No, I was next door. I will be at Bellotto, though. Uh, mm, getting great, Bellotto. Great restaurant. No. Now that she's off Dry July. <laughs> no, it's funny. Since Dry July, I definitely drink less. I don't know how mm. long. You don't sort of... Yeah, interesting. Anyway, that's one. That sounds absolutely delicious. So it's, did you say Casa Rojo? Casa Rojo. So R-O-J-O, Casa Rojo. Mm. What else can you tell us about Miles? And so, so from, from them again as well, the other, one of the wines that we sort of really like from their range is called the Enemigo Mio Ganacha. Ganacha. Yeah, so 100% Grenache. So we're on a bit of a Grenache trip these days at Prince. Uh, really, really fantastic. It's got this beautiful combo of sort of like sweet and savory, that lovely fresh crust, crushed kind of raspberry fruit, but with this lovely kind of like bracken and sort of charry earth thing going on as well. So you get a little bit of that sweet fruit and a little bit of that savoriness, sort of that mid-weight style Grenache that you, that Spain does really, really well in particular. Um, I think this is from, uh, I think it's from Mechia. It's from a sort of down sort of south, and sort of a little bit closer to the coast, a, a young vineyard, a single vineyard. Um, fabulous. I've yeah, never heard Miles really use, crunchy and a bit savoury. And I've never heard him use the word bracken before when describing. Yeah. He, he comes up with a different. I'm waiting for <laughs> celery. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I tried celery in a wine. In <laughs> that, my. Uh, that's a challenge to in you my, um, from people who listen to drop drops of God. Um, the. The what? Apple TV series I've been talking about the last few. Who weeks. is drops? Of, is that um, this is the Stanley this is, Tucci? No, no, no. It's a it's a fictional piece, eight ah. eight part series. I told you about this. You've just not. Yeah, I just notes. don't. Yeah, but I don't. I don't really know what. But, it, the, but it's a wine. It's a competition for an inheritance between. Oh two, yes, that's right. Between two potential inheritors, and right. they both have arguably the best palates and the best noses right. in the world. Is it a Japanese story? It's set partly in Tokyo yeah. and partly in Paris and partly on a, in a vineyard just out of um, Paris. I think originally it was a comic maybe, like a sort of you know adult type comic. Really? Uh, I think it's based around Gosh, that. that's good intel. I think. I could be wrong. Anyway, it's a great that's show. That's how I know it from years it. ago. But celery comes it. up in one of the celery. discussions. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you definitely, you know, it's always interesting when you're tasting wine with people sort of maybe outside your group or who just have a different perspective on wine, often maybe aren't even that involved in it, they can come up with some really interesting tastings and, and notes because they just smell and taste different things. So you just, everyone tastes and smells different things. Like you have a different library of aroma. And, and a fact check, flavor. just because you're on the money, Miles, uh, Drops of God was actually adapted from the New York Times best-selling Japanese manga series oh, there you go. of the same name. Nailed you know, it. Into your talents now, you're a Nailed literary it. guru. <laughs> 
Well done. I had no idea about that. But when you say library, that's really interesting because, Caro, do you remember that show we loved with the woman chess, the young chess champion, the chess player? The Queen's Gambit. Queen's Gambit. Oh, yeah. And there Great were the, those scenes where she lies in bed and she's, she's sort of memorising chess moves. moves and she sees them above her. In this, and not giving anything away, one of the characters, when, oh, I'll say, okay, she, it's the her, the girl, when she tastes the wine, she closes her eyes and you go visually inside her head uh, and she's in a library and she's in a sure. library picking her way through not just books, but um, bunches of cloves and raw garlic and yeah, celery cool. indeed and apple and pear. And then suddenly she'll lurch through the books and pull something out and it's an orange. Mm. And then she'll say, yeah, that's cool. you know, so it's, it's all in her head, but Absolutely. she, she explains that she sees the flavors, mm. which is really interesting. For sure. Well, you, like your nose is connected for a bit of science. <laughs> you like your nose is sort of connected directly to your, to your hippocampus, which is your long-term memory storage. So there's a lot of those things, you know, you know, your connection with smell is so That's important. So and it really true. comes from a really like ancient sort of part of our sort of it's biology. It's not something I'm good at. That is yeah. so true. You yeah. Know, so they, you have this really oh. deep, you know, you smell something, you go back yeah. into, well, it's that back in time it's or, or to My, that place. It's, it's, it's that kind so of thing. funny you say that because when, mm. you know, when I was away, um, when, in Italy, a smell, I walked past a bakery and a smell overcame me and I, it took me a little while to remember. Mm. My, remember Maya, um, the... Lonsdale Street entrance, Cara, there was the cookie bar all those years ago, yes. all the fresh biscuits. Yep. My mother used to go in there and buy a Dutch biscuit. I don't know right. what it was called, but we always had these Dutch biscuits. If we went into the what? city, if we went into town. Like those beautiful waffly sort of ones. They just, were, yeah. just really like a spatula or I don't know what they're called, but anyway, whatever. It sounds like that. Not a street waffle. No, 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 no. Just it's like a little but cookie. It's thin? thin cookie. And it, it's spicy, obviously. It has cinnamon and nutmeg yeah. and that kind of thing. So, so. That was a special treat if we were in Maya, we would go down that side and she'd buy the thing and we'd go home and, you know, we'd eat it until the next trip to town. And I walked past this bakery and I smelt it and I walked for about, I don't know, a couple hundred metres thinking, I know that smell, I know that smell. And I just went, bingo, that's what it is. And I loved that. Oh, it's, a, I it's could amazing. could do that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I should be a wine. Well, I, my, my greatest smell memory I... growing up is the tomato sauce smell when um, mum used to drive us to school around Alexander Avenue. And oh, there was, yeah. was it Heinz or whatever the factory um, was? Rosella, the, the Rosella, Rosella factory. Yeah. yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah. Anyway, getting yeah. back to the Grenache and the earthy, brackeny, beautiful wine, how much uh, do we pay for this? 49 for that. 49. Yeah. And that sounds like a beautiful area, of another area of yeah. Spain we need to explore. And Cas you... So Casa Rojo is there a... a uh, I, I'm not sure if they're husband and wife, but they're, 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 uh, they've sort of started this a little while ago and they make wine from everywhere. So they make wine from sort of where they're located, which is in that sort of regions, Ribera del Duero, Rioja, up in the Northwest, Rueda, uh, Albarino from, from Maria's Baxis. So they kind of picking the best vineyards and, and sort of connections they made over the years, both of them in the wine industry. So an interesting little, I guess, project you would call it. Um, so really cool. So de definitely worth checking out. You don't want to recommend a vermouth while uh, you're here. I did. I just looked something. Vermouth. <laughs> we were talking about it. Vermouth. Vermouth in in Spain. Yeah, I love. I mean, I love vermouth, but uh, I particularly love Spanish vermouth. Yes. It has. It often has a bit of that kind of sherried, kind of nutty, like walnut skin kind of really cool thing that you get with with that, and often 
There is white vermouth, but obviously red vermouth is really what you see most popular there. So the one I've got, uh, I thought I'd talk about is called uh, the the Silar de Silos, which is a Rioja, uh, Rioja producer. Anyway, another Spanish producer, wine producer. And this is his Golfo Vermouth Negra. So based on red wine. Um, and it's, uh, it's a little bit of time in oak. Um, it's got quite, it's quite a rich sort of style vermouth. It's quite sort of full little bit sort of smoky, all those kind of dark berries, those lovely, all those like mix of sweet spice that you get with vermouth. Really, really good. The sort of thing you could drink on its own. It's got a bit of, it's got a bit of oomph behind it. So, so. Miles says vermouth and I say vermouth. Well, vermouth seems to yeah. have become the thing. It's American too, but having, you know, well, spent, the... spent time twice this year in two very different parts of Spain in Early February, there was nothing nicer than walking somewhere for lunch mm. and sitting and having a to start just vermouth a small vermouth and once just white, lunch. once red. <laughs> no, oh, yeah. that's that is just the start. Yeah, just the start. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> perfect sure. aperitif. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, perfect. it is. It really. And the helps. weather was colder then. Yes, it was mm. and delicious. How much does that cost? That one. Uh, that's that... seventy dollars, and I think it's a liter though. So. And we can get that at Prince. And you can get that at Prince. Absolutely. Well, if you There's don't... a lot more, but that is a great one. If you don't have anything organised for cocktail cabinet next week, maybe we could have like a, a really um, pungent kind of interesting on the nose red and and a white, just little samples. Something with celery in and it. And maybe we, yeah, something with celery in it, probably uh, not. Um, and maybe we could taste it and say what we think, Miss Jane as well, and we can just actually, sure. and you can take us through what tasting. we're looking for. Yeah, a live tasting. I better get maybe, something I know really well. And so then, I and then maybe good. we have Miles's, um, Miles's, on the nose, half dozen or something like that. On the nose. On the nose. I don't know if Miles. Sell them that way, but um, yeah, I can pick something. Miles. A, a red. That was brilliant. Nosy, we must away. Nosy red. We must away. There's um, gr- we've got to be grumpy. We've got to review a book and a screen and a food. Yikes! And we're going to see you next week to um, talk good reds. Sounds good. On the nose. Reds on the, on the nose. That was Miles from Prince Wine Store. It was wonderful to see you, Miles. And just remember, princewinestore.com.au, and put in the promo code M E S for your ten percent listener discount. Miles Thompson and Wines of Spain. Sorry for Red Energy, it's time for BSF and I am going to kick us off with a book I have just finished and absolutely loved. One of the more original books I've read in a long time. I know it's a few years old now. It was shortlisted um, for lots of different prizes, women's fiction, um, the Australian Books Industry Awards. I didn't know anything about Meg Mason, the author of Sorrow and Bliss. You probably do. This is a beautiful book. It. I love its cover, don't you? Yes, I, I love do. its cover. Yes, I do. A woman lying on her back, sort of her, she's extended over on her back, the sort of arm of a sofa, and her she's covering her head in her hands. This is um, a very dark book at times, and yet it manages to be funny. The dialogue is absolutely brilliant. It is a story of mental illness. It's a story of, of a form of mental illness when it is finally diagnosed that is never given a name. And yet it's pretty obvious what it is, whether it's, I think it's bipolar, but that's not really the point. The point is, this is a story of love. It's a wonderful family story. It's based in London and Oxford. The main character is 
called Martha. She grows up in a most unusual, sort of dysfunctional family with a sister, Ingrid, she absolutely loves and adores, and a father she loves and adores, although he's hopeless, a failed poet, I guess, and a mother who is a drunk and a sculptress who goes up and down a lot and might explain a few things about Martha as we find out later on. There's a wonderful cast of characters, cousins who live in Belgravia, the wealthy cousins, headed up by Aunt Winsome. There is Patrick, who meets Martha at Christmas Day at one of Winsome's Christmases and falls in love with her and never stops loving her from the age of 14. It's about Martha's first dreadful marriage, her second ma- marriage to Patrick, which you find out about very early in the piece. I mean, there's no spoiler alerts. And the battle and the person she becomes through the black dog or whatever it is that is just bringing her down again and again. It, wow. It asks questions about selfishness and is mental illness, is there a point, however mentally ill you are, where you just have to pick yourself up and stop being selfish? And stop treating people around you the way you have and stop blaming everyone else but yourself and stop hating yourself. Um, it has a lot to do with families and having children and whether Martha's Martha has very definitive views on whether or not she wants to have children, but there are twists and turns in this very, very sad tale. And never has a title been more apt, Sorrow and Bliss. I feel like it must be a bit autobiographical. And Meg Mason, I think, had one crack at this and then went away for a long time and came back. Um, it she, is. Did, she's an Austra- she's, she was born in New Zealand, but she's an Australian author. And did you know she's a journalist or she was a journalist? I didn't know that. So she's written for the Financial Times in London and Vogue and The New Yorker. She's, um, so she's got a cracking good record. Oh, she's just, it is, it's just a really, really good book. I think Anna from the Op Shop talked about it very, very early on in the days of Don't Shoot the Messenger and raved about it. Um, you really do laugh and you can't believe you laugh because it's just so dreadful, some of the things Martha does. But there's, it, look, it's about forgiveness. It's about so much. It's a love story at its essence, I believe. And it's a story of a mother and daughter at its essence, which is compelling and I really, really think you should read it. I, I will. I, it was uh, shortlisted for the Women's Prize, which, as we know, is my favourite literary prize in the world. And um, I love your review. I, lo- I was amazed the other day when you said it's a fantastic book because it's been around for a little while and I just never really thought to pick it up, so I will. Caro, you and I and a few of our potty friends and Miss Jane and Tara from, um, from here at SEN who works with us on our wonderful events. We all went and saw the Miracle Club last week. Do you want to kick us off about the Miracle Club and the synopsis? I just wanted to pay tribute to Tara's beautiful blue silk shirt that I would love to know. (laughs) I don't think it would look as good on me, but it was lovely. Anyway, um, the Miracle Club is a small film. It's an Irish film. It's set in... A small film with a big cast of women. Yeah, amazing (laughs) cast of women. Headed up by Maggie Smith and Laura Linney and Kathy Bates, who are all extraordinary in it. Um, There's some wonderful um, Stephen Ray, who I remember... Oh, he's been in a lot of wonderful films. But um, for The Crying Game being one of them. The Crying Game was such Um, a good film. It's a family story. It's a family saga. Is it set in... Is it Dublin? It's 1967 Dublin, and interestingly, the three lead actresses, none of whom are Irish, which no. has caused a bit of contention over there as this film's been released. 
Well, it, it's about it's basically one of those. Um, it's meant to be one of those, and there are so many of them, and we've seen so many of them over the years. And a few podcast friends said this to me after the film. We've seen this so many times, but it's a story of um, there's a family tragedy at the heart of it. There is um, a prodigal daughter at the heart of it, and there is a road trip at the mm. heart of it. And also at the at the heart of it, there is a group of girlfriends, and one of them has died at yes. the heart of it. Yes. Well, yes. Um, well, he died of very old age. Oh, yes. yes. So not, not suddenly, all, yeah. but they're, they're a close-knit bunch in this village. And yes. So but the family tragedy the happened, yeah. happened 20, 30, yeah. 30 years ago. That's right. Um, the, but, like, but, but like so many Irish tales, you know, the village, the priest and the prodigal person who comes back <laughs> afterwards, yes. Yeah, it, look, it, it's about it's a well worn the road. Thing, but it the works road trip for me. is to Lords, and that is um, what makes it a bit different, and what makes it original, and what Lords can do for you, and whether or not this family or these various characters. I mean, there is a, a child who needs to go to Lords for a special reason, and his mother wins or tries to win a prize to go. She doesn't win the prize, but she ends up going anyway. They all this wonderful motley group of sort of misfits who have who are so connected by this dreadful tragedy all end up on this bus trip to Lords. It's mainly the women who go, the men stay behind and it's very much a, a film of the time it's set in the sixties and the it's sort of almost overplayed and a bit silly the way some of the men just can't cope when their women leave and threaten them and are almost violent trying to stop them to, from going in a emotionally violent way, but they do all go. Some dreadful things happen on this trip. Some dreadful things are said. Old scores are settled and not settled. Um, I think that um, a lot of people had a problem with the fact that the two old friends who haven't seen each other for 30 years, Kathy Bates and Laura Linney, are in fact 16 years age difference in real life. Kathy Bates is very good at it. She's very good yeah, in it. She's had, she must, she's had a lot her, of work, hasn't she? She's had a lot of work, I suspect. I shouldn't say that in case we get sued. I, I imagine she's had a bit of work. But um, her Irish accent I found more annoying than the fact that, that she was supposed to be school friends with Laura Linney. The Irish accent waxed and waned, shall we say. <laughs> it was a little inconsistent. But you're right. I mean, Laura Linney is, what is she, 58 she's or 59? And in real life. And Kathy Bates is over 70. 73 or 4, yeah. And so we're try- they're trying even. to present them as the same age, which I imagine we're landing around 60 somewhere. Um, really? In fact, it's it's 40 years she must have left. And Laura Linney is really, really good in it. She's she, great. Her, her gear is fantastic. Her 60s gear and hairdo is brilliant. Maggie Smith is a very consistently good actor. Um, there's a bit of overacting going on. There's um, the script is a bit thin at times. Things are said and then completely sort of glossed over and you can't really believe that would have really happened in real life. And the cinematography irked me too because there were some pretty clunky shots, um, one in particular when the busload of Irish folk arrive at Lourdes. It's just the clunkiest photography of them. In the, in the, it was obviously a scene that was shot after they had come home from France, from the front. Have French you ever shoot. been to Lourdes? No, I haven't. I, it it made me want to go. Oh, yeah, totally. The shots of the cathedral and, and even I'd only be the going old... to the I – I'm not looking for the miracle, but I would be going to the cathedral. It looked pretty stunning. Yeah, it was a lovely idea. It's not, a, it's not, it's not 
90 minutes, I'll never get back. So I actually really, I sat there and enjoyed the whole thing thoroughly. I'm glad some films should only be 90 minutes mm. and this is one of them. That's the first thing you said when we got in the car. Yep. A couple of interesting reviews, Rotten Tomatoes, who we love. The Miracle Club is a sincere and meritorious effort. <laughs> What they could condescending. Say. And um, you know how I think Roger Ebert is still alive? Roger Ebert said, or somebody writing on behalf of Roger Ebert, there are moving moments, but once the miracles start coming, the film tilts into very shallow waters. It's best at its most casual, the interplay of emotions and resentments, the silliness of holding grudges, the pain beneath the surface of these women. I thought that was a pretty good description. Yeah, that is. No, I, I would say definitely, and, and if you miss it at the cinema, honestly, if it comes up on TV, watch it and you'll really enjoy it. Now, Corrie, our friends at Cobram Estate, um, creators of premium Australian virgin olive oil, sponsor our food segment. Remember, this wonderful olive oil is grown, harvested and first cold-pressed in northern Victoria. And you have been cooking with virgin Cobram Estate virgin olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, and you've made something that you were showing Damien Barrett from the sounding board earlier on. Well, Damien said he had the same cookbook, and I said, have no. you turned to page 88? And he had not, so he wrote it down in his book. <laughs> this is from One Pan Perfect by Donna Hay, friend of the pod, Donna is, and this is a terrific hardcover book. I think it came out about a year ago, this cookbook, and it's a real go-to for me. Uh, particularly because, well, who doesn't love a one-pot pan recipe? <laughs> I certainly love it. Less washing up. Is it one that goes in the oven or on top of the stove? It goes, it both actually, under the grill. So it starts off on the top and then it goes into the grill. But it's called baked pan-baked tomato and parmesan feta. Now, look, I have to stress that not every single recipe for the next five or 10 or 20 years of this podcast will have olive oil in it, but... It does have olive oil and I certainly use my Cobram Estate classic flavour. Quarter of a cup of extra virgin olive oil, two red onions sliced, three cloves of garlic, 12 stalks of Cavolo Nero. I couldn't find it. I used... Um, that was like me last week. I used frozen yeah, spinach. Right. I use kale for this. Um, three by 400 gram cans of cherry tomatoes. I only had two as it turned out, but I did have some fresh ones in the fridge, so... They all got together. Salt and pepper, a half a cup of finely grated Parmigiano Reggiano, six sprigs of lemon thyme, two by 200 gram feta pieces, basil leaves and pasta or toasted sourdough. Now this recipe involves the cooking and the stewing and the slow cooking of the tomatoes with the slices of feta on top of it with the Parmigiano Reggiano and the oregano uh, sorry, the lemon thyme on top of it and the um, and your greenery, whether it's rocket or kale or um, cavolo nero, whatever it might be, all intertwined, and then you put it into the griller. You can serve this in many ways. I love it with pasta caro. So I pull it out and then put it into a big fry pan. So I guess that's two pot. I guess that's a two pot, two pan recipe. But in and I mix it in with um, with pasta, and we serve it and we eat it. And it's delicious. A friend has done this dish, uh, and has just served it as an entree with a breadstick. So you dip the cheese and the you know you just it's all, it's, it's all in right. So it's pretty messy, but it tastes absolutely spectacular. Just a light lunch that'd be yeah, perfect. it is. And I think the key point about this recipe, and I'm holding it up to the microphone so everybody can see it, particularly Caro. The key, the one, two sort of things come out of this. 
the joy of time, and I mean T-H-Y-M-E. I love time. I love I love oregano, but fi- but finding that my herbs had survived me being away for five weeks was a joy. But finding my lemon thyme was intact, that really brought this dish to life. The chopped basil leaves at the end also brought the dish to life. And I have to say, grating like when you have two cheeses, a two cheese bake of any sort, or a three cheese bake, this thing rocks with the um, Parmigiano Reggiano and then the saltiness of the feta underneath it. Really beautiful dish. Highly recommend. That's Donna Hayes. Pan-baked tomato and parmesan feta. And that was BSF for Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131806? And thanks again to our friends at Cobram Estate. Corrie, you are grumpy. Well, it's not about uh, the traffic or my car, but it is about another uh, horrid chestnut of mine, which is fashion, in particular this time men's fashion, Caro. Business people who are still wearing suits but have dropped the tie, which is fine, which is absolutely fine. Men and women um, who have dropped, non-binaries, everybody who's dropped a tie, good on you. We've come out of COVID, life's more relaxed, fantastic. But for goodness sake, it doesn't mean you have to drop your dress standard. You have to remain smart and debonair. And Caro, I Where has this happened to you recently? When I was in Milan and Rome you know, serious fashion spotting on the streets, the well-dressed Italian men, and I mean women, that's a, that's a whole other thing, but <laughs> the men the men who are on their way to the restaurant for lunch and they have no shirt. So this is summer, admittedly, sorry, no tie. This is, this is <laughs> okay. <laughs> if only that French soccer coach. No, 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 enough of that. Um, actually, actually, we were taken in, to task about that by yeah, a potty. Well, um, I don't think we were taken to task about that, Corrie. Okay. I think you... I was taken to task. You actually, I thought we were all in it together, you, Jade, and I. No, you okay, were being... I was you, taken you to were task. being taken to task for being hypocritical because on the one hand, you're talking about men being objectifying women and you did exactly the same thing. Oh, I think that's just crazy. But anyway, point taken. Thanks for that. Don't agree. But anyway... Um, so these casual, well-dressed, urbane, fabulous, suave um, businessmen in Rome and Milan have no tie. And what I noticed was that they were absolutely shirt perfect. And what I've noticed about the blokes since I've come back is that they're not shirt perfect. If you're going to go without the tie, a tie frames your neck and your face. If you take away the tie, that's fine. But you've got to have something framing your face the peaks of your collar have to sit upright. They can't flop out. The other thing I've noticed too is the number... Jane, Miss Jane's enjoying this. The nut, Jane, the number of buttons that one undoes is also really important. Too many buttons, like three undone, too much button. Only one undone, not enough. So chaps, have a real think about that. First of all, if you're... If you're um, Jane, no laughing, please. This is not Benny Hill. If if your sides are flapping open, I suggest collar stays, which are those little metal or plastic points that you insert into your collar edges so they sit up. This is actually turning out to be a good local tip. Um, for goodness sake, could everybody please have a perfectly ironed shirt if you don't have your tie to distract from that? What if it's linen? That can be a bit crumpled, can't it? Slightly, could be, but make sure you've applied starch, please. In a linen shirt when you're wandering through the streets of Italy? I don't think so. (laughs) Aren't you meant to Um, have it? If you're wearing a summer linen or cotton suit on the the linen um, moment, Caro, 
try and think of a different fabric for your shirt because you just can't, not matchy-matchy, you can't have a linen suit and a linen shirt. So maybe go for poplin or something like that. If you are going to embrace the no-tie look, embrace it with joy. I keep seeing all these stitched up blokes in the city who have ditched the tie look, but they've still got on those Oxford leather, you know, important, serious businessman shoes. And they've still got the business look and they've just taken off the tie and they look so awkward. Embrace it. Like think about having a loafer or um, even a sand shoe. You know, if you're going to go casual, go casual. Um, I did say here, accessorize because you no longer have a tie to, to be a distraction. So think about a little handkerchief in your suit pocket or maybe um, a watch, With runners. a nice watch, Thank you. a leather wristband, even, I've written here, even, yes, a gold, a thin gold chain around your neck. Mm, I'm not sure about that entirely. But do remember, most of all, Caro, and this is what I hate, is when the boys are with their, when they've taken their ties off and they have their suit coat buttoned up fully. No, no, no. We're embracing casual. Undo the buttons or maybe just have one button. For goodness sake, Australian men, I love the fact that you're relaxing in your fashion, but just try and do it with care and love. That's what I'm saying. Oh, I don't know where to go with that. So what I'll do is move straight into six quick questions. Another fashion one, Caro. Which Women's World Cup uniforms received your three, two, one, Corrie? Three Australia, but only when we were wearing the turquoise. So is three the best? Or oh, is... sorry. No, uh, sorry. We'll do brown voting. Okay, one for Australia. Yep. Only the turquoise outfit, not the yellow and gold. Two England. I thought the cornflower blue look was really terrific. But um, my three votes go to France, the Le Bleu. I thought that light blue that they wore was really fantastic. And I actually loved their reverse outfit, which was the white jersey with the royal blue shorts. I thought France, of course, rocked it. And a special mention to Netherlands, of course, orange. Caro, on the World Cup, who was a notable absentee from the, from World... the World Cup final? Prince William. Oh, yes. It was slack as, seriously. I mean, he's the president of the National Federation. Either he or Catherine should have come to watch the Lionesses. They should have been there. I mean, the, the excuse that I read, which I think was official, was it just wasn't worth it to take such a big trip for such a short time. Now, I'm sorry. They should have been, they should, or everyone from Spain was there who should have been there including the misfortune, unfortunate president. But I, I just think Prince William should have come or some or Catherine. I mean, if, if you're going to take on a role like that and your national team has made the World Cup final and, you know, Australia is part, still part of the Commonwealth. He and Charlotte sent a message, but when Charlotte oh. bobbed up saying, go Lionesses, I thought you could actually have the three kids, the two boys as well. That would send a very good message. Well, I just think he should have been here. So that was slack. Corrie, where do you stand on the Bradley Cooper fake nose debate? Do you know about this? No, I'm about to hear though. He's playing Leonard Bernstein in a Netflix series. So Leonard Bernstein is arguably the 20th century's greatest composer, American composer, Jewish. And he had a very prominent nose. So Bradley Cooper has taken this and a bit like Nicole Kidman when she played Virginia Woolf has done the prosthetic nose. But of course, it's offended a lot of people. First of all, he's not Jewish. Um, and secondly, a lot of um, a, a lot of anti-Semitic. Um, there's been a lot of anti-Semitic behaviour on um, social media and so on, Why? making fun of it, because throughout history, Jewish people have often been portrayed 
you know, with the large hooked nose. Going back to cartoons in the 17th and 18th century, going back to the original Shylock, as we understand in The Merchant of Venice, the Shakespeare play. And it's just not on now after after the Holocaust and after what's happened in the 20th century. And now there's greater understanding and, and empathy. And I, my stand is, Bradley, ditch the nose. Your performance will be fine. We don't need we don't need that sort of obvious stereotyping when it offends people. I, I must add that Leonard Bernstein's children, adult obviously older children, um, have come out in defence of Bradley Cooper and the directors and the producers of this film, saying that that's what their their dad did have a nice big nose. They said, and um, it breaks our hearts to see any misrepresentations or misunderstandings of Bradley's efforts. Um, he chose to use the makeup to amplify his resemblance to her, to our father, and we're perfectly happy with that. But actors do that all the time. I mean, Russell Crowe did it, wore a prosthetic suit, didn't need to be Roger Ailes. No, I know, but I think because there's this anti-Semitic feel about the way the big nose, the hooked nose, has been depicted in in history, we have to appreciate that and respect that as non-Jewish people, which Bradley is, and maybe just not go there with that. Isn't it funny? It's and now, an interesting dilemma, though. And now big noses are in. Are they? Oh, I think so. I think big noses have become really popular. Really? I bet you there are less nose jobs now. That's interesting. Caro, the death of Michael Parkinson prompts me to ask, who is your favourite TV interviewer? Look, it's um, fascinating, isn't it? And, and I must say, I, as a you know, growing up, I loved Michael Parkinson. I now cringe when I watch certain interviews, including the Helen Mirren one, which is so incredibly sexist and pervy. It just is embarrassing. <laughs> um, I, I, I've i loved different... I used to think... I think Mike Willisey was really good in his time and had a really good manner. I really enjoy Sarah Ferguson now, who's picked up the mantle of Lee Sales and run with it on the 7.30 oh, God, report. I, think, I thought you were going to talk about the Duchess of York there. That's Sarah Ferguson. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, yeah, not Fergie. Um from America, there was is a great history of women interviewers, and um, these Barbara uh, Walters. Well, Barbara Walters was the one. I mean, she just pioneered it. But Diane Sawyer was another one I really liked. Oprah, look, Oprah's got all the big names, but she's had a few poor moments. Um, anyway, er, er, Ellen DeGeneres, I really liked. But I think the one that I really, really enjoyed that was a much must watch for me when his show ran in Australia was Andrew Denton. So mm. I'll, I'll give him the thumbs up, Corrie. Finish this sentence. This week, I sent a cheerio and well done to... All those parents who have prepared or are preparing their school children for Children's Book Week. You wait, Caro. You wait until little Sonny's ready to go to school and the announcement comes. Oh, next week, it's Children's Book Week. And we'd love the parents to dress the children up in a character of their choice. Pandemonium ensures. When we had the bookshop we had parents coming in, pulling their hairs out, saying, they want to be Paddington Bear. What do we do? Where do you get a bear suit? Anyway, Harriet went off as Princess in Black. She looked terrific. Um, the other two in Ballarat, they're not at school yet. Interestingly, Florence in Melbourne, her daycare centre said, I'll come as a character. She went as a unicorn. Not sure what book that's from, but that's okay. Um, an imaginative moment, but I just hats off to all those parents who have been racing down to Spotlight in the wee hours of the... Maybe Evening. Lib and Will are Irish Rovers fans. Remember the unicorn. <laughs> Remember that? Isn't it funny? My my um my great niece up in Sydney, Frankie, she's a unicorn freak because her mother, well, actually her mother is, her mother Sarah is. Oh, there's been a lot of unicorn talk in all our households in recent days. Um, and what's the difference between a Pegasus, Mopsy, 
I don't know. <laughs> Tell me. Anyway, well done, all you parents. You're all amazing. Now, Caro, what's this week's amazing fact? Well, after doing the field of women, I turned my mind to women and the MCG and the MCC, and we've spoken about this before, but as it, it is an amazing fact that in 19... Up until 1984, when women were finally allowed to become members of the MCG, John Cain began this movement in about 1982 in my memory. Women were not allowed into the long room. They were not allowed to cross the blue line, the members line at Flemington. It is just extraordinary. They couldn't be proper members of the VRC. They could only come on ladies' tickets. That was 19... And can give you a kiss on the lips. Corrie, we were 20... We were in our early 20s when this happened. I mean, it is just extraordinary. So John Cain, despite a lot of opposition, basically declared that if it's Crown land, you can't ban one half of the population. You can't discriminate. He is a hero, John Cain, for many reasons, but that is, for me, the greatest example of positive reinforcement and changing society and why I will always believe in quotas, because the only way women were allowed to become members straight away and not have to endure this really long waiting list, that they were never allowed to get on when they were born, as men were, is by basically men could give up their ladies' tickets for women. So women were allowed to take a ladies' ticket and get in straight away. What has happened since then, women have just, you know, the MCC for a long time have had many women on their committee. We haven't seen a women president, a woman president yet, of the MCC. I hope that's not too... You'd make a very good, if you were not a full-time journalist, you would make a very good president of the MCC. Not sure about that. You might get a gong. You might be Lady Caroline. Anyway. Get your curtsy ready on that one, I I don't think I would, but... What, be Lady Caroline? What has happened happened in recent times is that if you become a 50-year member of the MCC, you were given a vastly, vastly, virtually free membership, vastly reduced. Now, that was really, really starting to cost the club and they need they need lots of money. They're always trying to find new ways of making money, like charging a certain fee to be on the waiting list, etc. What they've done is more is paid now by all members, but they've wound back the clock again for the women. Now, a lot of men have been a bit grumpy about this, which amazes me, but obviously... I've been a member of the MCC since I was allowed to be, as has my mother and my sister, Amelia. So we, we got in in the first intake, 83 or 84. I think you've been a member. Uh, uh, 87, I think I was. So we once we turn 65, we are eligible to become 50-year members and we will have vastly reduced membership fees. That's very good as news. As do the men. I know, very good news. And um, a lot of there've been a lot of fifty-year lunches held for the women this year because of this change. Yeah, well, uh, My well, a friend of mine and a, and a friend of mine, Rebecca, has been to one too. Caro, um, have I told you the very super quick story about the friend of mine, Peter, who went to a fifty-year member lunch, and there were ten blokes, of course, no women at that stage around the table. And um, he goes, oh, good day, hi. I didn't know any of them. He said, hi, my name's Peter and did his surname. And somebody stood up and said, oh, hello, I'm Peter also. Oh, there you go. Hello, I'm Richard. Hello, I'm Steve. Hi, I'm Peter. I'm Peter. I'm Peter. I'm David. I'm Peter. <laughs> <laughs> so can I just say that 50 years ago when these men were children and were made members, there were a lot of Peters in their class. That is very funny. And this is not an excu- exclusive club, the MCC. Anyone can be a member. And, of course, the reason I love the MCC is because I love football. But I've now actually played my first game of bridge at the MCC Bridge Club. 
have you. A wonderful, wonderful I, Thursday did, afternoon. Did you know I'm on the MCC Literary Committee? I only found this out in the last couple of days, Corrie. Board, actually, or is it called committee? A I few, don't know. A few friends Sounds of important. mine went over and represented the MCC Bridge Club at Lords during the Ashes <gasps> Test, played against the Poms. Hey. They, now, whi- they that, whipped us. But that's a team you'd like to be chosen oh, for, Carol. don't worry. Four years' time. I've set my calendar. I see, I played bridge with Tim Lane for the first time, and we actually had – we did okay. It was real – everyone was so lovely, the Hans Ebling room. You played – well, 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 so many things I want to ask here. So you played bridge with Tim Lane at the MCC. Yep. So this is a bit like the Dallas Brooks in golf, a man and a woman play together. You don't have to be a man and a woman. Oh, so how did you discover that Tim liked bridge? Well, I work with him every week. Oh, and so we've do talked you, do about you talk about your rubbers? Or? No, no, but just over the journey, we've mentioned that we've both played bridge and we said about a year and a half, we should play one day at the MCC. And the first time we were scheduled to play, I had a funeral and that was last year. So we finally did it last week, but we met for a sandwich in the Trumbull room to talk tactics earlier. <laughs> and, all these, and all these people... Came up to us, you know, like footy types. I'm sure they Stuart did. Fox, the CEO, said, oh, what are you two doing here? Are you here for the 50-year members? And I was, of course, offended because I'm not 65. And I said, no, we're playing bridge. And he just looked stunned. But there was beautiful homemade chocolate brownies. and Do you know what? We came third and we'd never played together before. I called in at the golf club the other day when your bridge gang were in the middle of it or maybe you were, I don't know, having a – I saw the spread. God. Oh no, they don't. Do, that that would have been oh, just lunch. Oh no, I saw a spread of nice cakes and things like that. Mm, well, there's, there's no exercise. You're just sitting there putting on the calories. Well, if you sit east, if you sit east west, you move from table Although to table. Sounds, <laughs> <laughs> Although it does sound so stressful, you probably lose lots of weight through anxiety. Anyway, women. I'll never understand it. Women and the MCC. I still sit here today and cannot believe. And it'll it'll take until 1934 when they're a genuine 50 year member. Not Sorry, 1934. 2034. But Vale, John Kane. Yes, I agree. I remember such the, foresight. And there was so much opposition at the time, as there was to women being able to jump forward the 50 year membership queue. How good it has been for every sport and every section involved with that club. I mean, the AFL and you know the women crowds, etc. I look forward to the day that. There's an AFLW game at the MCG. Now, I don't think you'll get... It'll be a while before they get 100,000 people. But in a big final, if they could, you know, get 30,000, 40,000 people at the MCG... And remember, the Adelaide Oval, over 50,000 people turned up to see Adelaide's first premiership in AFLW. We could the Adelaide do it. Oval. Well, we could just send out a tom-tom through the podcast. We've got thousands of listeners. So much we have talked about. Thank you to Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro. Thank you to Prince Wine Store. Thanks again to Cobram Estate, premium Australian extra virgin olive oil, the best. And Corrie, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger with Caroline Wilson and Corrie Perkin. We love hearing from you, so join us on Facebook or Instagram at Don't Shoot Pod or email us via feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. And if you'd like to support the show, the best way to do it is to tell a friend to listen. Your word of mouth recommendations are just so greatly appreciated. And of course, you can support our wonderful sponsors who make the podcast possible. Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted 
listed energy providers three times. Maybe it's time you switch to red. Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil, grown, harvested and first cold pressed in northern Victoria and Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne and delivering Australia-wide. Visit princewinestore.com.au. Hi, it's producer Jane Neild here, and when I'm not producing Don't Shoot the Messenger, I have the pleasure of jumping in a podcast studio every couple of weeks with Shana Blaze, of course, interior designer, judge on the block. Shana, the Homestyle Podcast, it's DIY, it's design, it's renovation. What can people expect? Uh, solving problems, I think. You know, we get, you know, we have our little hashtag, what would Shana do? So people have questions of like, you know, I'm going through this at the moment. How can I solve it? But it's also talking about how we can save money. What are the new things coming out? And just talking how your lifestyle works with your home rather than you trying to fit into your home. You'll find a link in the show notes to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And you can subscribe to the Homestyle Podcast with Shana Blaze wherever you get your podcasts.